Listener Production. Hi, I'm Amy Dale and I'm not a lawyer. But since working at the Law Society, I've met and worked with plenty of them. And I've also met countless people who need help understanding the law and, more importantly, knowing how to find the right lawyer. That's why we've created this podcast, to help make the law accessible for you, for me, for everyone. No jargon, no law speak, I promise. Just me diving into the most common legal problems to help you make the best decisions possible. Welcome to Lawfully Explained. When asking, can my neighbour really make me do that? I think there is no better person to speak to than Alison Benson. Alison is a lawyer who specialises in exactly these types of disputes. So issues with neighbours, particularly those involving community title associations and strata schemes. Hi, Alison. Hi, Amy. So, Alison, and I think that this is definitely something that is particularly relevant at the moment, having just been locked down and going through a pandemic and people getting irritated by renovations and noise and those sorts of things. But when we think about issues that we have with our neighbours, when does something go above being simply an inconvenience and when does it actually become a legal issue? That's a really good question. The issue is that not all inconveniences are a nuisance. When something is more than a reasonable person would consider to be a reasonable action. So for instance, a dog barking occasionally, that's not going to be a nuisance. That would be an inconvenience. So you always have to use this standard of what would a reasonable person think? So you have to try and put this objective standard on it. Take yourself out of your shoes because we can all get up into our own minds and we can put our emotions into situations. So take a step back and think, okay, well, the dog was barking. The dog was barking for 12 hours yesterday (laughs) from 12 noon until 12 midnight. That is not reasonable. Absolutely. But if the dog was barking because there was an intruder and there was a, you know, police presence after the intruder from 12 noon to 12 midnight, that would probably be very, very reasonable. And in fact, I quite like that if a dog in my neighbourhood did that to alert me to an intruder. So say I'm in a situation where my neighbour makes a decision on their property that impacts my property. So I think most people would usually think of this as some sort of overgrowth situation, but I'm sure you'll have other examples of other types of issues. Is it best in a situation like that to just go to my neighbour first and try and have a chat about it? There's a number of different factors to that question, and I'm not trying to uh, be legalese about this, but we need to actually have a look and say, what actually is the situation? If somebody is, for instance, just not pruning their hedge, that I would literally just go over and speak to my neighbour and say, look, you know, you're not pruning your hedge, it's dropping leaves over to my side of the fence. Would you like to come over and do it? Or would you like me to, to do it? And I'd have a chat to them about that. But on the other hand, if you had a meth lab next door, for instance, I sure as heck wouldn't be encouraging people to go over there, knock on the door and say, could you please stop making that noxious odour? <laughs> so we need to actually have a look at the situation as well. And different situations call for different responses. And I mean, they're really two extreme examples. But trees are a really good one. And, you know, it might be other things that um, I remember when I was growing up, somebody decided that their house wasn't particularly noticeable along a long stretch of the Pacific Highway. So they painted it pink and purple. Now that 
impacted all of the other neighbours who had to look at it, but can you do something about that legally? No. Wow, Hmm. I was going to say, yeah, in a situation like that, I mean, is an offensive colour scheme, is that a legal issue? Well, not in that particular area because there was no heritage orders. It was a stretch of farmland along the Pacific Highway. It wasn't a community title scheme. It wasn't a strata title scheme that would have overarching rules about what you can and can't do to your property. So in that case, no, there there wasn't. But, you know, a a quick chat revealed the reason that they just wanted their house to be more noticeable because they were sick and tired of giving directions. (laughs) Um, So, you know, a nice handy compromise would have been just to say, hey, guys, does anybody mind if, you know, I paint my house this colour, next time you paint your house, paint it, I don't know, a different shade of white. So different circumstances again, what is the impact that your neighbour's actions are having on your property? If your neighbour builds a dam, for instance, that's directly above your house, well, then you really want to be able to know that one, it's been approved and two, that it structurally sounds so that you're not going to next time there is a an East Coast low come along, that dam wall isn't going to collapse and you're going to have a swimming pool in your lounge room. So in some situations, you're talking about instances where you feel that someone may have had something approved if it's sort of some addition to their house or a renovation. Where can I go to check to see if someone actually has had that approved? There's a couple of different things you can do in that situation. If you are not in a strata or community title, then you can go to your local council. Most councils have got what's called a DA tracker uh, and it's an online tool. You plug in the address uh, of the property that has built something and you can see if a DA has or application has been launched uh, and a DA is a development application, I should say, for those who are listening. If you live in a community title or a strata scheme, there is a second mechanism you can use. Check your bylaws for the scheme. So oftentimes you do need to have the approval of the owners corporation or the community association for work. And that approval is generally going to form a bylaw for a strata scheme, which will be registered on the title of the common property for your scheme. So they're the mechanisms I'd be going to check. Just be aware though that not every development needs council approval. I just want to ask you about a myth that I've heard and that's if my neighbour has put something, say like a shed in a backyard and that hasn't been approved, if they then sell the property, does that work that they've done, is that then automatically approved? The really quick answer is no, unfortunately. It doesn't mean that it's been approved and I would always encourage people, if you think that there is a new improvement upon the property, just double check and see if a development application was required for that. And if it was required, wasn't actually approved by council. Uh, Because what could happen is you could get a complaint from your neighbour to council and council could come out and say, well, that was never approved. That shouldn't be there. You need to pull it down. And that sort of stuff does actually happen. It's it's not a myth. In a strata context, I can give you a, a real life example that uh, one of my clients purchased a new lot. It had a beautiful new kitchen that she had moved out or she actually hadn't. The previous owner had moved the kitchen from its old location out onto the balcony and then created this lovely open space living area. In doing so, they changed all the plumbing for the unit. Now, it hadn't been approved. My client 
if she had have been aware when she was looking, she would have known just because of the setup of the, the kitchen, it was clearly a new kitchen. So she should have been looking to see if there had been some approval for that work to be done. Um, there hadn't been. She was forced to go back and to reinstate the property to the way it was before the new renovations had been done. Oh, so wow. that was a really, really expensive mistake. If there is a situation where something has been approved, so say if my neighbour puts a renovation in and it completely blocks out all of my son, but I know that they did have it approved, do I have a right to challenge that and to appeal that approval, I suppose? Generally, what you'd actually be doing, and this is always best, is to challenge these things before they get built. So, if somebody's building a large structure, say it's, you know, the cubby house the size of the Titanic in your backyard, then it would require a development application through council. You would be notified through council of the application and given a chance to object. And that's your forum to object. If council decides, well, your objection doesn't mean enough to them and approves the the Titanic in your backyard, then you can appeal to the Land and Environment Court and that is essentially the next level up. So this is also a lesson that when you get those letters in the mailbox that usually are alerting you, (laughs) definitely read them, don't put them in the bin, just go, don't go, oh yeah, whatever, and just pop it in the recycling bin because suddenly you might have a cubby house the size of a Titanic next door with little recourse. Do you often find that there's confusion around the shared stuff? Absolutely. So it happens all the time. Retaining walls can be the bane of my existence on any given day. There are acts that assist us with this. So the Dividing Fences Act assists us with not just ownership of the fence, but who has the responsibility to maintain and repair the fence. But also, what is a dividing fence? In some cases, it doesn't have to be on the property line. In some cases, it can sit on top of a retaining wall. And then, you know, there's a question of whether the retaining wall is also part of that dividing fence because they can be very, very expensive to repair. Um, So it happens all the time. Yes, we need to look at the situation Oftentimes, I do get a surveyor out so that we know exactly where the fence is. There may be an easement that relates to a fence, a driveway. Driveways are very, very common as well and very expensive to maintain. So we need to have a look at the terms of the easement as well. In owners' corporations and community associations, oftentimes it's a little bit easier because they are deliberately designed to have communal property and there are rules about how you use that communal property and they're in your bylaws and your management statement. Not always, but most common property will be covered under the rules or under the acts. It's a really interesting point as well that you make, Alison, about the idea of like the pink and purple house, but also there are other more benign examples like a tree growing over your fence. But if I make a demand of my neighbour, so say, please don't paint your house pink and purple or please cut your tree back because it's growing into my fence. Does that count for anything legally? So it depends how you make the demand as well. So in certain situations, such as in the tree situation, you may end up having to go to the Land and Environment Court to get orders for the tree to be removed, for instance. So if you think it is going to escalate, I'd be popping it in writing, whether it's an email or a letter, 
So pop over, see your neighbour and say, look, I'm having trouble with this tree. The limb looks dangerous. It's overhanging my pool or my backyard or whatever the case may be. And I'd like you to trim that. And then pop back home, get on the email and just say, further to our conversation, we have an issue with the tree. We think it's a little bit dangerous. We'd really appreciate it if you could trim it. Please let me know, you know, how I can uh, assist you with this and when it will be done. Mm -hmm. Uh, And that way you've got it in writing that you first requested that this happen. If you ever then need to start formal processes under the law to get the tree removed or to have the tree trimmed, then there's evidence that you've been trying to resolve the dispute from initial start. Yep. And they've got a record of that. So in deciding to do that, is that when it then returns to the idea of a reasonable person? So therefore, I do have to demonstrate that this is causing me some inconvenience. Yeah, look, and again, it depends on what type of dispute it is. But if you have, you're just demanding that a tree needs to be pruned, for instance, you need to actually establish the reasons why that tree needs to be pruned. You can do this very, very nicely. It doesn't have to be confrontational. So we're not starting a backyard war over the tree. <laughs> I think yet. Yet. <laughs> I'm definitely looking forward to coming to the yet part. But I think <laughs> just uh, one other thing that popped into my head is when you were talking about the sort of overgrowing tree versus meth lab. And it does raise an interesting idea that what if you do have someone and it doesn't need to be even necessarily concerned that they are committing a crime, but what if there is someone who shouldn't be approached or if you do have some concerns about their attitude or even do fear violence, what would be your best approach in that circumstance? And it might not even be that the person should not be approached. It might just be that, for instance, they are never at home or they're not home at the hours that you believe are normal hours. So a lot of shift workers, for instance, or fly-in, fly-out workers may not actually be home. And you may have had a run-in when you're up nice, bright and early. That person's just got the first hour of sleep and you bang on the door. Mm. And you may not never, ever want to approach them again because of that. (laughs) So there, there might be some very good reasons why people either aren't around or aren't approachable. Obviously, if you think that they may get violent or you fear violence, don't approach them. You can ask for your dispute to be conciliated or mediated through different forums, like the community justice centres. They're a really good New South Wales forum. And in fact, the number one topic of their mediations is actually complaints with neighbours. So this is a perfect forum. And what they do is you give them the details of you know what the issue is. They will make contact with your neighbour and they'll try and arrange a safe place. And the mediation or conciliation can take place in a non-threatening background. That's one really good way to softly, softly approach somebody. Mm. Um, You could pop a a note in their mailbox, for instance, but watch tone because it's really, really easy to mistake tone in other people's writing. So uh, letters, notes in mailbox, emails. I'm sure we've all had that email that you thought, wow, where did that come from? And when you talk to the person, they didn't mean it that way at all. Yeah, they're so So, nice. And you think, oh, wow, but the, the tone is so important in those things. Absolutely. So there's lots of different things you can do other than physically approach the person. If you are 
not confident and you need a help, then obviously you can talk to a lawyer and they can approach. And it doesn't, as I said, does not have to be confrontational. Sometimes people think that lawyers go in there and we're doing the, you know, Erin Brockovich, very confrontational, very in-your-face approach, as we've all seen from the movie, but it doesn't have to be that way. I feel like the next question I want to ask is perhaps on the topic of escalating And that is, and again, I feel like often people have ideas around what it's like to take legal action. I don't know how often you get this question, but I think a lot of people do have this question and that's, can you sue somebody in Australia or in New South Wales? and, And how do you do that? Really good question. And we do get this all the time. Can you sue somebody in Australia? Well, yes, you can, but you've got to have something that's called a cause of action. And a cause of action is basically a set of facts that gives you a legal right. So not everything that somebody does to you that is wrong is actionable. For instance, my partner took the last can of Coke out of the fridge. Well, if I was litigious, could I sue him? Is that theft? Probably not. In fact, it wasn't because he part owns the fridge and the house, so there would be implied consent to take the last Coke from the fridge. But that's a really, really simple example. Somebody's dog, as I said, that's barking, maybe it's barking for 10 minutes every day at a certain time when the postie comes around. Is that actionable? Well, it's probably not causing a nuisance. If it had been barking, as I said before, for 12 hours without a reasonable excuse, that would be actionable. So you could sue for that. And that's one of the reasons that you would actually go to seek legal advice is to find out whether you actually do have a cause of action and then to choose if you've got, as in most cases, a number of different causes of action. Do courts actually hear these cases often or in in a situation like a neighbour dispute, would the people complaining be sort of often urged to just sort of sit down, have a cuppa and try and sort their differences out? If you do something like go to the community justice centre, essentially conciliation is an informal way of sitting down with somebody to help facilitate the discussion and to resolve the dispute. But in most cases, before you can actually go to the New South Wales Civil and Administrative Tribunal, which overlooks those type of disputes, you have to have evidence that you have at least attempted to mediate the dispute. With strata and community titles, you go to the Department of Fair Trading, their mediation services unit, and it's a free service. So I actively encourage people to take it up. And the Fair Trading organisers a time and a date for yourself and the other parties and a mediator to sit down and try and work through what the underlying issues with the dispute are and then what possible solutions could be and try and get an agreement by consent. I would have, oh, very, very few cases that I could think of where I haven't at some stage in the proceedings been asked by the registrar uh, who's doing procedural directions before the main event By the main event, I mean the final hearing, but the registrar will generally always ask, have the parties attempted to mediate? It's very, very, very uncommon for a hearing to go ahead where the parties have not at least contemplated mediation. doesn't mean that mediations are always successful, but in the modern legal system, there is an emphasis to try and get parties to come to some sort of consensual agreement. Is that where a lawyer is often best placed to help in the first instance to sort of try and work with you to say there is a path forward here for both you and your neighbour to sort of come to some sort of resolution that you're both happy with? 
Oh, absolutely. And I think you need to start thinking of lawyers as, you know, a library. We have the knowledge. We've trained. This is what we we do. So use and abuse lawyers for their knowledge. Um, (laughs) And why? Oh, look, it it sounds horrible, but that is the, the basis of our job is to apply the knowledge that we have and we've gained both through our studies and across the years and apply it to your particular situation. And then to be able to give you advice as to in your situation, X, Y and Z applies but on the outside, there may be an option A. Uh, and to try and guide people as to what their rights are, what their responsibilities are, and what their options are. You need to use a lawyer to give yourself the knowledge, to put yourself in the best situation to say, what are my rights? What are my potential causes of action if I do need to take this further and to escalate it? So if I need to sue someone. And then what are my prospects if I do sue somebody? What's the jurisdiction I need to go to? What evidence do I need? What are my prospects? And what's the process? I think the process question is also a good one because I think that it's sort of often common knowledge and particularly sort of over the past couple of years with delays that have happened as a result of the COVID pandemic is that people do think that the court process can take a while. How do I get help? So if I'm facing an urgent issue and I feel like I need this to sort of come to fruition quite quickly and I I don't feel like I've got months to potentially go through a lengthy legal process. Court proceedings and tribunal proceedings for that matter, they can be lengthy. There are KPIs or key performance indicators for courts and tribunals as they are for most of us in our jobs. And those KPIs say, you know, depending on the jurisdiction, they like to have a certain percentage of matters dealt with and had final hearings and decisions for, but it doesn't always happen. And building defects is a really good one. Those type of cases, unfortunately, due to the nature of them, can last for years before you get a decision. But if if you, for instance, have a, a builder on site next door, you can see that they're going to knock down the retaining wall because you can see the bulldozer is sitting there and the man's just about to jump in the the bulldozer, then you do have avenues. So depending on whether you've just got a house and land that isn't governed by strata or community titles legislation, you can jump off to a court uh, and you can seek an urgent order. And that's known as an injunction. An injunction is just preventing somebody from doing something, in this case, starting the bulldozer and attacking the wall and potentially you losing the support for your house. An injunction can also force somebody to do something. You're living in a a strata scheme, for instance, you've got water flooding through your unit because upstairs have left their bath on. You can't get access to upstairs. They refuse to. So you can go to the tribunal and you can ask for an interim order to access upstairs to turn the bathtub off. Mm. Um, Those type of orders, injunctions and interim orders, they're really important and they're designed to effectively freeze the situation in its current stage so that no further damage can occur. So sometimes courts can act very, very, very quickly and tribunals for that matter can do so as well. Mm, That's great to know. I know you were saying before that people use and abuse lawyers and I hope that you haven't been abused because that would be horrible. (laughs) But what is the most surprising or extreme instance that you've encountered of someone taking action against their neighbour? There is one particular story and if I sound amused, it, it really did tickle my fancy. It was what I call the War of the Gorilla Gardeners, and it all had to do with a garden. 
and what the gorilla gardeners were doing. And one of them was my client because they're living in a strata scheme. There's common property uh, and that common property garden has a lovely pool. It's in a resort area and this particular scheme has a lot of retirees in it. So they they like their the gardens generally in this building. Having said that, the person that I was representing at the time, she wanted a cottage style garden. Ooh. Other people in the building wanted a tropical style garden around their pool. The cottage style <laughs> garden was put in place. Overnight, all of the cottage style garden plants and landscaping had been taken out and replaced with tropical planting around the pool. Wow. The battle of resort style living, but have a think, go to Bunnings, have a think about how much plants actually cost. This was actually a good couple of thousand dollars. What we had was the cottage style garden replaced under the cover of darkness with the tropical style garden. Guess what happened the very next weekend? What happened? We went back to a cottage style garden one night. This war continued. There was at least five iterations of overnight all of the plants being ripped up and replaced with the alternate style of plant. Um, It must have cost tens of thousands of dollars, not to mention the loss of sleep. The rest of the lot owners that were paying, by the way, for the replacement garden on the owners' corporation side, they got to have their say too. So we agreed to get two different landscaping plans set up and then go to the vote. It did settle down after that once these two people realised it was not just their garden. It, in fact, was everybody's garden and they had to share So I suppose a lot of the questions I've asked you have been more from the perspective of somebody who I'm the one who has the grievance. But if it turns out that somebody had a grievance against me and it's found that I have been unreasonable and they do have a cause of action against me, would I then find myself having to pay legal fees just for having done the wrong thing? Or how does that process work if I'm found to have done the wrong thing? Sure. And again, if you are in that sort of situation, then's a really good time to call a lawyer and to get some advice as well, because we're not always, unfortunately, in the right, uh, much as my partner loves to tell me. Thanks, Trev. Uh, (laughs) But we're not all in the right all of the time. So sometimes you do need to be told that, unfortunately, or given that advice, and then you can figure out what your options are from there. So if you are in the wrong, then you do, in some situations, run the risk of, if it goes to court, paying costs orders, and that would be the legal costs of the other person that had to take you to court. A lot of these disputes between neighbours are often in the New South Wales Civil and Administrative Tribunal, which is called NCAT for short. And in NCAT, there is a general rule that each party pays their own costs. So there has to be special circumstances, such as uh, a person has unnecessarily prolonged the proceedings or their case was just so weak it should never have been taken. Those sort of situations would be special situations and would allow an award of costs to be made. But in a court, it's very, very different. In a court, the general rule is if you lose then you are generally going to pay the other side's legal costs. And it doesn't necessarily mean 100% of their legal costs. In very few cases, it means that. But it does mean a good proportion of the other person's legal costs. So get advice early and your lawyer may say to you, look, 
your claim is weak, your claim is strong. In either case, there can be really good reasons to make an offer to the other side. One, you can settle the dispute on grounds or terms that you're comfortable with. Two, you get some certainty and it can protect you. If you do have to go to a full hearing, if you're unable to settle the matter, it can protect you against a costs claim. So I think it sounds like what I will take away as advice in this situation is probably to, first of all, go and make myself a cup of tea and work out if this actually (laughs) genuinely is something that is a true inconvenience to me or if this is something that I just have to bear as the cost of, particularly in apartments of communal living and understanding that we do as participants in a a society sometimes have to put up with noise and, and sort of work out if I've got more than just an everyday grievance. And then in the first instance, always try to find common ground with the person who's involved and see if things can be resolved. But I think also it is really interesting to know that there are options even through community justice and even just through having that initial chat with a lawyer to get a sense of what my options are. And I think that's so important because I know when we're in a situation like this, it's so common to feel all consumed by it, particularly when it's something that is affecting you in your home, in your personal time as well. I think it's probably quite easy to get overtaken by emotion. So it seems like a lawyer is a very good first step. Look, absolutely. And that's one of the real benefits of speaking to a lawyer. You get that objective opinion, basically. And don't be afraid to say what the situation is to your lawyer. I have had people do what I call the the drip feed uh, and you get the information in dribs and drabs. Lay it out. You can get the advice. It's confidential. You can then know what your situation is. Get a third party that is not involved, is not emotional about it. And these sort of disputes over the last couple of years, because we have been stuck in our homes, essentially, some of us for 24 hours a day, it does escalate everything when you can't get out and away from the problem. So I think it's even more important now to try and get that objective opinion Absolutely. Alison, thank you so much. It was wonderful to talk to you. It's been a pleasure. What you heard in today's episode is not intended as a substitute for legal advice from a qualified professional. I'm not even a lawyer, remember? So if you are looking for legal advice based on your individual circumstances, head to lawfullyexplained.com.au and find the solicitor who is right for you. Lawfully Explained is a listener production in partnership with the Law Society of New South Wales. Hosted by me, Amy Dale. Production by Emily Toccato and executive producer is Todd Stevens. Listener.